We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who show for the month of June 2023. Dave, hello. Hello. We've both had birthdays since our last episode went out. We have. It feels a long time ago now, but happy birthday for earlier in the month. And and to you. And to you. Thank you very much. Listeners, we haven't had one of these for a while because we don't tend to solicit them all that often. But when we get an Apple podcast review, we do read them at the start of the show. And Dave, we have had an Apple podcast review this month. Oh, excellent. Let's see if it's good. Yeah, this is from Enfield Wash from Great Britain on the 13th of June. I am very much a latecomer to this podcast, but I'm already a convert. I should have known it would be good, as one of the guys also helms Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, of which I have heard every available episode. Does anyone know what's happened to this, by the way? No new episodes since last December. Dave, you can get to that in a moment. The guys are so knowledgeable, and I love the flexible format and range of topics covered. They have both been fans since childhood, and it shows. Fascinating to see the same but different experiences of two Aussie fans in their 40s with my own as a slightly older UK fan. There are more Doctor Who podcasts than you can shake a stick at, but in my opinion, this is one of the very best and I'm so glad I found it. Long may it continue. Five stars. Well, always happy to get a review like that. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much to uh, to uh, Infield Wash. Yes. There is more space for coming. There are two episodes being edited at the moment and Richard and I recorded an additional two more episodes uh, last weekend in fact so there is more coming down the pipeline it's just we're both just a little bit busier than we used to be and we want the episodes to be as good as we can possibly make them so they have fallen a little bit off as we've tried to get the production line going but look there are four more in the production line and we will keep going very nice very nice Moving into some news, as is our want, Dave, I'll take lead here because I've heard that BAFTA winner Lenny Rush has joined the cast of Doctor Who. And this is quite interesting because Lenny Rush is only 14 years old. Yes, I had no idea who this was when I saw it on the run sheet. I thought I better look them <laughs> up and see if I've, I've seen them in something. And uh, no, I haven't. Hmm. And look, whether this is a full-time thing or whether we're using companion, because some of these articles are saying he's a companion, whether we're saying companion in the same way that, say, Adam was a Ninth Doctor companion, I don't really know. I I don't know if at his age whether he'd be like a full-time kind of companion on the show. Yes, or is he someone that they come back to on Earth, for example? Mm. Hmm. in, in the way that Danny Pink was, for example. So there, there's a few options. And, and, and yes, I think we have a couple of problems here. One is that RTD uses the term very, very loosely, particularly when he's trying to solicit media because he's a master at getting media. Mm-hmm. And the media is sort of very happy to also be a bit casual with their language in a way that Doctor Who fans do not appreciate because we have very firm definitions of what counts as a companion, damn it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, RTD in, in the press release, folks, said that Lenny is joining the TARDIS team, which 
people take to mean companion, but it might not mean that at all. Cards on the table, Dave, I haven't seen Lenny in anything. The BAFTA he won was for something called Am I Being Unreasonable? It was a comedy of some kind. I, I do know also from images and such uh, that Lenny has dwarfism. And uh, in the publicity shot that's sent out is on a miniature Segway sort of setup. So perhaps he's going to ride that around on the show. And it gave me shades, Dave, of Warwick Davis back in the 80s, who was another young British actor with dwarfism, uh, who got cast into things like Star Wars and Willow. And I think he might have been about 18 when he did Willow. So he's slightly older than Lenny, but the shades of that, I think that's quite interesting too. Yeah, he was younger when he did Empire, um, not Empire, um, Jedi, wasn't he? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, probably not a bad little comparison. Look, it, it was a big enough deal for it to get some media in the UK, so I think it's one of those things that may have resonated in the UK more than us, but yeah, interesting news. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I have another piece of casting news, arguably bigger, mm-hmm. arguably bigger, mm-hmm. and that is RTD and the BBC have confirmed that Bonnie Langford will be back as Mel in the upcoming season of Doctor Who. Wow. Uh, Again, they use this very loose language that suggests it's more than just an episode. In fact, let me read you a little bit of Mm -hmm. RTD's excitable commentary. Okay. (laughs) Such a delight and an honour and a hoot to work with is Bonnie Langford. And this isn't just a cameo. It's a big, great starring role with the stakes higher than they've ever been before. Hop on, cowboy. This is going to be nuts, Loveheart. Hop on, cowboy. (laughs) Okay. I don't know if that's just like that's just the thing that RTD says now to sound cool. I don't know, uh, but but you know it's it's not just a cameo, so it's clearly more than she got in Power of the Doctor. Is it a couple of episodes? Is it half a season? Is it one episode? Uh, we don't know. But uh, Mel is back. It's been from what I've seen very positively received by fans, which is mm-hmm. you know really really good. I think that you know there was a time where she was about as hated as any companion could be. Yes. Uh, Certainly during her time in the show, famously, uh, Eric Saywood and Ian Levine basically both left the show in protest over her casting. I I I don't have a problem with her. I think she works really, really well with Colin's Doctor. I don't think she quite worked as well with the Seventh Doctor. We had a whole podcast about companions that that, that work well with one Doctor but don't transition as well. Mm Mm-hmm. But look, I always thought that Bonnie Langford gave it her all. I think she's really good in a number of stories. She's a really fine actress. And, and, and look, it's it's just really funny because I think even now she's just not the star in Australia that we know she's in the UK. And we kind of intellectually know that she's a big deal in the UK and always was a big deal in the UK, but mm. not really a thing out here. Oh, the average Australian wouldn't know her at all. No, no, no. Where she is properly a household name in in the UK, I think. Yeah. Look, it's it's good to see. I'm very happy that Bonnie's coming back. The only note of caution I have is a year or more ago, Rob, after Spider Man No Way Home came out, mm-hmm. we had a bit of a discussion on the show about the No Way Home effect, and that that was really crystallising in the pop genre, pop TV and film entertainment genre, that idea of, you know, the Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield come through the portal moment and Mm. everyone in the cinema cheers because their childhood just came back on screen and it's really lovely. The Flash came out a week ago. I saw it at an advanced screening. This isn't a spoiler because it's in the publicity material, but Michael Keaton's Batman Mm -hmm. is, is back in that. Um, and there are some other things in there that I won't spoil, but but again, we're seeing a lot of this 
can I just put someone's childhood on the screen and get some dollars out of it? And I'm a little bit worried that after we did that in Power of the Doctor, which made sense because it was a centenary of the BBC episode, is there going to be a little bit too much of the, I'm bringing this thing back and I'm bringing this person back and your kid when I brought companions back, so let's just have more. And that could be great. It could be fun if it's done really well. I'm just, there's just a little nag at the back of my brain that goes... Is it going to be too much? Yeah, well, even Flux itself was delving into the idea of multiverses and things. It didn't do much with it, but it was certainly talking about it because it was very conscious that that's in the zeitgeist at the moment in pop culture. And I kind of shuddered at that. That was enough for me. Yeah, so look, I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be positive. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not, you know, down selling this. It's a useful moment to talk about whether we're going to see a lot more of that no way home style um, nostalgia. Hmm. Uh, Dave, Davo's wife has written a book. We've been contacted by the lovely folk over at Pan Macmillan in the UK to let us know that Davo's wife, Elizabeth Morton, has written a novel called The Orphans from Liverpool, which comes out very soon on July 6th. And the link with Davo alone, I think, might interest some people. But it, with it being an historical fiction piece, think World War II, Liverpool in the UK, kids living away from their families, all that sort of thing. I think some listeners with that historical bent in our audience might be quite into this. Uh, And I'll also mention that our friends over at Sirens of Audio actually had Elizabeth on recently, and she talked about the book, uh, and also it gave them a chance to talk about her big finish work as well. So if you're into the idea of this book, do uh, check out Sirens of Audio as well, and you can hear a lot more from Elizabeth herself. Oh, okay. Very cool. I must admit, when I saw the summary, I thought it might be said a few years later because my mind instantly went to the leaving of Liverpool TV series, which was pretty right. big when I was at high school. But uh, no, okay, fair enough. Mm, yeah. Uh, now we're going to slide out of the news into, <laughs> what do we call it, Rob? Pseudo news? Gossip uh, column? Um, rumour and innuendo. Rumour and innuendo, that's a good way to put it, because we are going to talk missing episodes very briefly. Mm-hmm. And I say it's pseudo news because I'm about to read an actual comment that was printed in an article and based on actual comments, mm-hmm. but we'll leave it to our listeners to judge if it's actually news. Now, I'll, I'll read the statement and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Archive TV hunter Philip Morris, who located and returned nine missing Patrick Trout episodes in 2013, has revealed he knows of four more missing episodes which exist in private hands in the UK, plus another two which he's tracked down overseas. Now, Rob, I think many of us in fandom have sort of heard the whispers from people from Doctor Who um, fandom, from people like Paul Venesis at the uh, Restoration team. I don't know if that team still exists, but certainly, you know, that, that sort of collection of fans where, where it's sort of been intimated that, yes, they suspect that they are people with private collections who they know have got some Doctor Who and that there is sort of an ongoing process of, look, if you're ever interested in selling it or if you're interested in giving it back, that would be nice. And Well, Doctor Who has been found in private collections before. You think of the famous uh, Crusade find that Paul Schoons has talked about on this very show and and many other podcasts as well. It, it has happened. I think it can happen again. Yeah, absolutely. But this is, this is the first time that I think it's been very publicly stated with a with a definitive number where they say four are sitting there with collectors. Um, I did reach out to a couple of people after I heard this and 
one did make the comment that part of the process was sort of all about just keeping a relationship up with the collector so when they eventually fall off the perch the family doesn't just throw these things in the bin mm-hmm. so sort of you know maybe it's a case of look we're just sort of waiting around and keeping the relationship going and one day they will they will uh, find their way in because you know the family doesn't want a whole bunch of unwatchable film cans sitting around when they're trying to sell granddad's house <laughs> so so look it, that was interesting i hadn't heard before his comment about another two being tracked down overseas mm-hmm. now this is all of course getting fans a lot more excited than perhaps it normally would because we are approaching the 60th anniversary. Yeah. It was at about this point in the lead up to the 50th that we started to hear really substantive rumours about Webb and Enemy coming back and that mm-hmm. did actually happen. So people are maybe thinking, is history going to repeat itself? I tend to feel that missing episodes don't work like that. Mm-hmm. They don't just magically get found because there's a convenient anniversary coming up. Yeah. So I'm I'm a lot more skeptical about it, but but the fact that Morris and I believe Paul Venetius was in the room when this was said. The fact that Morris was able to say a definitive number of episodes I thought was new and different enough to be worthy of a mention. Yeah, and as I've said to you the the part that surprised me the most is that we've been told in the past, I think even from these kinds of guys, that the worst thing you can possibly do is talk up an episode find before you've actually got your hands on the canister, especially when it comes to, you know, copies sitting in uh, foreign TV stations or foreign hands somewhere. You start talking it up and they realise it's worth something. It can make it very hard to get back. So I'm surprised it's being talked up. So it suggests to me one of two things. A, it's a lot of hot air. There's really nothing. Or B, they've actually got their hands on it and they're somehow doing a bit of a, a prelude to it like oh we think we've got something when they really know they've actually got it because i don't see why you would go out and go against your own best advice and say oh we think we've got it when when you don't have your hands on it so i don't know i i'm leaning towards possible truth on this one yeah, look, you sound a little bit more enthusiastic than me, but look, neither of us knows, so we're no, just... No idea. It's a quote. It was given in public. I've passed it on. Listeners, judge for yourself. <laughs> and uh, on that bombshell, that's the end of the news, Dave. Shall we move on to short topics? Uh, yes, and you're leading us off, I believe. I am. I mentioned on last month's show that I was writing something for the annual Paul Sprague new writers contest at big finish so just a quick note to anyone who's interested that i have finished that 5000 word story not that you had to finish it big finish just wanted a story synopsis and the first page of your story up front but as i said last month i wanted to finish it before i submitted it so that's done and the contest doesn't end until the end of this month so if you've been dragging your feet folks and you still want to enter you do have time but with that out of the way i need to tell a story that could only happen to me dave do you want to hear this sure this this will be new news to you as well i was nearly finished with the piece the other week And I decided to research something in the story. And a number of the hits, when I typed this thing into Google, related to... Dun-dun-dun. A big Finnish story. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, I I read up. I quickly boned up on this story. What's it about? But, uh, shit. Okay, right. And although the stories appear to be quite different, 
the way I was using, let's call it X object to advance my story could have been to my detriment. I think someone at Big Finish might have said, hey, didn't we do a story that revolved around X object? So I quickly went back and amended the story to try and avoid that. And in doing so, I think I lessened the story. Maybe it still works. Maybe it doesn't. I'm a bit too close to it. And I got really dispirited when this happened, if I'm honest. If I'd known earlier, I would have taken some massive detours around it. Maybe not even written that particular story at all. But there you go. It's done now. My submission is in. And at some stage in the future, I will make the story public. Is the version you'll make public the original or the big finish safe one? It'll be the big finish safe one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've changed it too much now to actually go right, back and, right. and pull together bits and pieces from old edits. Oh, that'd be a nightmare on its own. So there you go. Yeah, fair uh, enough. I, I now feel what maybe script editors feel when, when they're editing a story and think, oh my God, this doesn't work, and they have to almost rewrite it. Yeah. You do, do you feel like Terrence Dix when Philip Hinchcliffe <laughs> went off the robot and you had to put in Dr. Solon and take your name off it? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> right. Well, if I see a big Finnish piece come out written by Robert Bland, I will. <laughs> I'll know who it really is. Very good, Dave. Have you got something? Uh, yes. Look, as listeners will know, I went up and went to a event in Sydney recently with Sophie Aldred, and we've mm-hmm. since re- since then we've released a little mini episode talking about that. And when I got on the plane to go and meet Sophie Aldred, I thought, look, I, I like taking a new adventure on a plane because. Unlike, you know, big, thick non-fiction books that I usually read, A New Adventure fits perfectly in Eugene's pocket and you can travel around with them. So they're great to read on the move. Mm. And so I thought, I haven't read Kate Orman's set piece since it first came out in the 90s. And given that there was a chance I'd be interviewing Kate Orman as well, this seemed a very logical thing to sort of get stuck into. And I have since finished it. I finished it a few weeks ago, in fact. And... It was a really interesting read. I Mm. totally understand why I got very little out of it when I was about 13 or 14, because it's very densely written is not the right description because it that implies it's hard to read. It's very very Mm. easy to read, but Kate Orman does write in a very literary sort of way, a very clever sort of way that, that 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 isn't it isn't easy reading. Uh, it's you know you have to work now it's, it's it's a fun enjoyable kind of work but you you do have to work with her prose style mm-hmm. and that is I think you know where a lot of the joy of set piece comes from in, in plot terms there's actually not a lot there and I get why when I was a teenager I've thought well this is quite hard to read and nothing actually happens so uh, I'm bored mm-hmm I liked it more this time. I, I still think that it needed a little bit more narrative to really be a properly exciting adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like the historical settings that they have. I think Ace spends a large part of the novel in ancient Egypt, and that's a really cool setting, and that's that's really interesting and really good. Uh, Benny and the Doctor are in different parts of sort of revolutionary Paris, uh, so that's really interesting. There, there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's a lot of ideas. The Doctor, because it's a Kate Norman novel, gets brutally tortured several times and has a pretty <laughs> horrible time. Uh, look, it was it was a really impressive read. It was a good read. I enjoyed it. It's it's not rocked up into my top ten, but I've certainly appreciated it a lot more as an adult than I did as a teenager. 
All right. I've been reading some Doctor Who this past month too, Dave. And for me, it was The Silent Stars Go By by Dan Abnett. And this is an 11th Doctor Amy and Rory story that came out in 2011, which features the Ice Warriors. And I'd always had a bit of an interest in reading it one day, but I never had. So sorry, before you go on, I'm not familiar with this. This is this is a novel? Yeah, it's a novel, yes. Okay. And as many listeners to this show will know, around COVID time, so what's that, about 2020, I went crazy and started reading a lot of Warhammer books. I've mentioned that on the show a few times. You have, yes. And one of the big, big, big names in Warhammer books is Dan Abnett. I bloody love his Warhammer books. So I thought, oh, wow, this will be amazing. And it's not. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, let me let me temper that a little. The, the first 200 pages aren't amazing. If I say to you, hey, the Doctor and Amy, who are, are being very annoying and quippy, just like they're on TV, they get split up from Rory. They're on a snowy planet. And the villagers seem primitive but they keep using words that sound like earth words that have been muddled over time, not unlike the face of evil. And there are ice warriors lurking in the forest, but they don't speak or really do much except lurk. And they chase someone at one point. That's literally the first 200 pages. <laughs> right. Then the final 100 pages sees the ice warriors actually speak to the doctor. There's a mystery that's been going on and that's uncovered. And there's a nice twist where Abnet actually draws on some very Warhammer-esque ideas. And the Doctor creates a solution. Everyone's happy at the end. So it does get better. It, okay, to be fair, it gets a lot better. But two-thirds of this novel feel like a pointless and boring runaround filler. Which is funny because the book you were just talking about sounded like it might have been quite simple and full of filler too. I was disappointed with this overall. Dan Abnet is way better than that. So there's my book review from 2011. <laughs> Silent stars go by. Don't bother, people. Don't bother. <laughs> Firm, but, but, but fair. Okay, there you go. There you go. Brilliant. Shall we move on to our main topic, Dave? Yes, I think we should. Right. Tonight's topic, folks, as you know, is the writer Mark Gatiss, part of an irregular series we've done on Doctor Who writers over the years. Dave, why did we pick Mark Gatiss? Well, look, as you said Rob, we have over the years done a couple of other writers. We started off with Terry Nation, and I had a, thought that was a really good exploration of his work. We've done another classic writer as well. And we thought, look, you know what? We we probably should do a new series writer. That, that, that would be a good thing to balance things out now. And we really can't do one of the three showrunners because... A, you'd be here for half the, you know, the next four hours trying to do all their episodes. But but also, you know, they're, they're showrunners. It's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And so we had to look at who are the writers that have done a nice body of new series work that we can look at. And Mark Gatiss is the obvious standout there. He's written oh, yeah. nine episodes of the series across four Doctors, which is a pretty huge contribution so there's a lot to talk about mm -hmm. but the other thing that really got him over the line i think for both of us is this theory we've both had for a long time that everybody loves half of mark gatiss's episodes and hates <laughs> half of mark gatiss's episodes but no one can agree on which half is which very true very true so so as a bit of exercise we thought look we'll go through we'll see how our views on his episodes have changed what we think of his writing and at the end of this we're each going to give a top three and bottom three and see how many steps we have or not yes <laughs> dave would you like to take lead or shall i 
Um, well, look, I might just give us a little bit of pr- uh, a prelude because Ooh. because between us choosing this topic last month and recording tonight, I have read his two missing adventures. Oh, that's dedication. I um, haven't. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I I really sort of just wanted an excuse to read Nightshade because I haven't read it for quite a long time and it's a favourite of mine. Right. Uh, and, and rereading it again, I was just reminded of what an absolutely excellent book that is it's a it's a proper page turner and when you read Gaddis's Nightshade which is the first you know professional contribution he made to Doctor Who fairly early on in the range I think it's the eighth book in the New Adventures range and the first standalone it feels like the Doctor Who story a Doctor Who fan has wanted to write for many many years and in their mind they've been going I will do this and I'll have this and I'll set it here and I'll have mm-hmm. an English village and I'll do it in the 50s and all the rest of it. And, and it's really, really effective. The Seventh Doctor's great in it. Ace is great in it. It's a lovely book and it just works really, really well. And so that was really enjoyable. Very clear from the start that Gaddis is a fan of horror. Uh, mm-hmm. High body count, lots of nasty deaths. I suspect that's a theme we're going to be uh, coming back to a bit across the course of this episode. Mm-hmm. And then I read St. Anthony's Fire, which I had no memory of at all. And asking around, and when I mentioned this on Twitter... No one else had any memories of this one at all. I, I don't know either of these books. I own them. They're on the shelf just over there. But I, <laughs> I, I have not read either of them. So tell me. Tell me what you can. Yeah, so St. Anthony's Fire was written a few years later in 1994. It's about halfway through the range. And it starts off really, really well. It, it, it has a proper alien world of Patricia which mm-hmm. has lizard people uh, on it, and, and these lizard people have a proper society, and they go around their businesses as, as lizard people, doing lizard people things, and there's a civil war on the planet, and it's set in a jungle, and, and, and Gaddis takes a while to really create a really interesting world. and it, it takes a little bit to kind of get your mind around all these characters with weird lizard people names and weird lizard people ranks and weird lizard people job titles. Right, um, but yep. once you sort of get get that all sort of is sorted in your mind, it, it, it's a really good sort of alien society that he sets up and he throws the Doctor and Benny into it, and, and that's really interesting. Uh, the first 100 pages, I was really excited. I thought, why isn't this mentioning more people's lists of good Doctor Who, good mm. new adventures? Then he brings in the other thread, which is the chapter of St. Anthony's Fire, a sort of a, a religious cult that goes around the galaxy being ultra-religious to people. Oh. And it's very clear that Gaddis is trying to make a point. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that Gaddis is really sort of giving his views an organised religion and... Um, uh, and all that sort of thing. Look, that, that, are, that, they, are they missionaries or something, or are they like the Inquisition? Or yeah, they're more like the Inquisition than they are okay. friendly missionaries. Yes. Okay. Yes, and so all that sort of gets thrown in. Then there's a whole third element of, you know, an evil from the dawn of time that sort of comes along because it's a McCoy story. So of course there's an evil from the dawn of time. <laughs> and look, I enjoyed it more than I expected. I think it's better than its reputation suggests. It doesn't quite have the coherence of the, oh my God, this is the first Doctor Who story I've ever written and I'm, I've been thinking about this for 10 years and it's perfect. Mm. You know, the, the same as Paul Cornell's Revelation or Gareth Roberts' Higher Science. Like, they feel like the, the story they've always wanted to write. Yeah. This feels like the, um, well, what's my second book going to be? Hmm, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and, and so, look, there's a lot of good writing in it. I, I did want to know what happens next. It, it wasn't a chore to read. I did enjoy it. it. It's certainly weaker, though, and I think... 
his desire to insert the author's message into the second half of the book does detract from the second half of the book. I I don't have a problem with messages in Doctor Who. I don't have a problem with politics in Doctor Who and themes in Doctor Who. I think, as we've discussed before, particularly with the Chibnall era, when it's kind of comes with a great big stamp that says author's message here, mm-hmm. uh, that, that I think, look, in any fiction, frankly, I think that always detracts. Yeah, it certainly does. So a 50-50 uh, hit rate there, Dave. A 50-50 hit rate there. Look, no, nothing I hated, but one was excellent, one was not. Mm. Shall we get on to the TV episodes? We, we shall. So, look, I've, I've waxed a bit about his, his new adventures, but let's bring you in, Rob. Do you want to do number one? Yeah, look, uh, obviously everyone knows he kicks off in Doctor Who proper, Doctor Who on telly, with The Unquiet Dead back in 2005. And I've got to say, I was really happy with this story back in 2005, and I still like it now. We'd had a modern-day story, which was all right, and then we had a sci-fi adventure that I wasn't blown away by. And then Gaddis pulled this out of the hat. And it was spooky. It had an historic flavour. And I was thinking, yes, this is Doctor Who. Or at least what Doctor Who can be and what appeals to me. So before we get to Dalek in story number six in that series, which is where many people say, oh, look, the series really takes off from there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think this is an early signpost that the series is in good hands. It certainly made me feel very hopeful. So that even though the next two episodes, Aliens of London and World War Three, are stories I didn't really like at the time, and I like even less now, I knew the series was capable because of this story. So this is in the good side of the ledger for me. Yeah, I have similar views certainly in my approach to the story mm-hmm. i think that when i watched it again uh and this would be probably the fourth time i've watched it and the last time would have been when we did our series one deep dive a few years ago mm-hmm. so i've watched it for a little bit but i have seen it a couple of times it does feel in my view quite encumbered by the fact that it's part of that opening triptych of stories. As you said, we get the present story, the future story, the past story. Yeah. So that new 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 fans to the show get an idea of what Doctor Who can be and the sort of the, the different styles and the few and, and the like, which which is really good. But it 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 certainly to me feels like a jumping on story, which is what it was. Yeah. And I think it does that job really, really well. It's it's harder for me to enjoy it as a piece of television in its own right. I think it, it 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 has to be simple because it is that very safe jumping on. That said, it's a very coherent story. It works well. It's very well cast. Gaddis's love for the macabre is on display very quickly here. In, in fact, let's, let's be honest, before the uh, opening titles is on, we have a, a corpse walking around, which I think is... In, in hindsight, Gaddis is putting a very big marker down as to the sort of writer he, he wants to be. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was all that much, but I, like, I'm not knocking it for that because it's it's doing a job it had to do, and I think it can't be divorced from that. Mm. Whereas I'll put my hand up now and say that, that maybe like Gaddis, I quite enjoy the Victorian era talons of wang triang you know put doctor who in in that sort of era and i'm there and i think gators is probably the same kind of guy so i think it really it tickled the same sense for me that i think it tickles in him 
Yeah, that's actually very possible because it's not an era that particularly tickles me. I'm, I'm not a particular fan of Sherlock Holmes, for example, and, right. and that sort of era. So, so maybe there was something sort of, as you say, sort of latching on to your sensibilities a bit more than it did to me. Yeah. Uh, that's very possible because I think it did it very well. It just wasn't something I've gone, oh, oh my God, this is for me. Mm-hmm. Should we mention the Mad Larry comments on this one that were quite a big deal at the time? Oh, I, th- I think contractually we have to. <laughs> I, I, I think we do, and, and this is a, a very famous case for listeners who haven't heard of. Lawrence Miles, or Mad Larry's his name to his friends, or enemies, is, um, wrote a review, he basically said this is this is a incredibly problematic political message because he says this is a story about a bunch of people who say we are refugees from a war. Uh, it's a war that is caused by, you know, sort of parallels of our Western society, mm-hmm. and they're saying, please let us in. All we want is shelter and food and we'll, we'll be really good. And the moment that we let them in, actually know they're horrible people who are going to destroy our civilization, and that the parallels with sort of, you know, far-right mm-hmm. painting of refugees as, you know, once they get here, they're going to be terrible and change our Christian values and all the rest of that. Yeah, yeah. The parallels are just, you know, too, too strong to ignore. Now... A lot of fans make sort of similar sort of assumptions about a lot of Doctor Who. Uh, in most cases, the authors are dead yes. and can't defend themselves. Yes. You know, this is a terribly racist story, and the author can't go, "Well, no, it's not. That's the opposite of what I was trying to do." Like, yeah. you know, um, whereas in this case, Gaddis is alive and well and loved by many, and he was able to say, "Oh my God, I had no idea." Well, obviously, that's not what I do. Um, and as is the case in a lot of Doctor Who stories, where you know we're trying to do some perhaps parallels, and suddenly they're a bad guy. Well, it's because it's on at Saturday afternoon at dinner time, and we need the monster. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, why, why do the girls suddenly turn out to be evil and bad and dangerous? Because we want an exciting monster to wrap up the last part of the episode. So, I think that's all Gaddis was trying. Well, I'm sure that's all Gaddis was trying to do. But it, it's an interesting window into uh, the fact that I think he was so keen on writing that exciting adventure with a cool monster and walking corpses. Yeah. It never occurred to him that he was, you know, writing a polemic about the dangers of refugees yeah you, you can read stuff into anything if you really try <laughs> i think that's for sure yeah absolutely absolutely so we both liked it you liked it more i from the sounds of things yes well let's kick on into his second episode we're now into the david tennant era mm-hmm. and that's the idiot's lantern I, as you know rob i've long been a bit of a fan of this one i've long had a yes. soft spot for it when we talked about stories from each year or two introduce someone to the show the idiot's lantern was my go-to for for the tenant era because i do think it's a very enjoyable story look i don't think the idiot's lantern is a classic i don't think it's the impossible planet i don't think it's human nature Mm -hmm. but i do think and i found it again watching this it's an enjoyable story that fills out its length in exactly the right way it's got a start it's got weird things happening. It's got the doctor teaming up with a local schoolboy to investigate them. And then you've got a big, dramatic, action-packed finale. The alien is a different sort of thing that you would get in a piece of inventive Doctor Who. It's not something you get in most other TV series. You do get a little bit of uh, message in there, and I'll come back to that after I've heard your thoughts, Rob. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find... The Doctor and Rose particularly smug and difficult in this. Yeah. I really struggled, particularly when she's correcting the guy about the Union Jack and is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) 
But fortunately, Rose loses her power to speak after five minutes, which maybe is another reason why I enjoy it so much. Uh, that's my opening bit on the Idiot's Lantern, Rob. Where did you come? Dave, it's one I didn't mind on release, but it's gone down for me since. Okay. Looking at it now, I, I think the era looks good on camera. I think the wire is an interesting enemy. Magpie Electricals is a cool concept. And then there's the B-plot with Tommy and his family, you know. Put together and baked, though, I don't think the cake quite rises in the middle. The faceless people feel a bit silly. The Doctor and Rose are obnoxious. And after an episode of building up Eddie as someone who is awful and who his mother and Tommy must get away from, and indeed, they do get away from him, Dave, the Doctor then tells Tommy to to keep Eddie in his life. (laughs) which seems like utterly terrible advice after everything we've been shown about Eddie. Maybe if he had some redeeming features and we're sort of on the fence, it's like, oh, well, he's he's so awful in this way, but, oh, look, he's good in this way. Oh, you know, yeah, okay, maybe that's good advice. But he's built up to have no such thing. He's built up to be a really, really rotten egg, Dave. (laughs) And yet the doctor tells Tommy, yeah, keep that guy in your life. That's a good idea. And I just think, no, that's a terrible idea. Interesting point. Um, I'll comment briefly on the faceless people because I think this is one example where we need to remember it 17 years ago. Mm. And I, I agree with you. When I watched it this time, I did look at that faceless person effect and thought, oh, that's a bit rough. That's a bit ropey. Yeah. Uh, which, I, and it would have been cutting edge at the time. And I think that's yeah, reasonable. Yeah. yeah, so it, that does date it a little bit. <sighs> I think that the B-plot, as you call it, Rob, is interesting because I think that having written a very straightforward adventure for his first episode and and really the whole of season one isn't getting too much into sort of um, uh, the feels, if if you like, in terms of sort Mm -hmm. of what the writers are putting in. There's obviously a bit of that, but not nearly as much as would come in later. I think having written that first one very safely, Gaddis is trying to work some message into this one. And... It's worth pointing out that Gaddis is an openly gay writer. I think mm-hmm. he's, he's now you know got a husband. Yes. And I think that Tommy does feel like a bit of an avatar for Gaddis, whether mm-hmm. it's particularly reflective of his household growing up or not, I'm not quite sure. But certainly I think that there, there are there are insinuations there that Tommy is, if, if not gay, then he's certainly, you know... Uh, uh, a, a softer sold, more sensitive boy. Yeah, he's, he's the mummy's boy in quotation marks. Yeah, and you know, the, 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 there was certainly, I think, I, I think that the, the, some of the comments the dad made about it were trying to point that to the audience in yes. a way that you know, th- those that would know would get it, and those that didn't, it would pass over them. So yeah. I, I think, I think that you can read that in there, and maybe because Gaddis is making Tommy the avatar for him as the writer, he mm. can't bring himself to not reconcile the family at the end of it. Right. And maybe also again cuz obviously you know this is this is a gay writer writing for a gay producer and a gay showrunner. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is a sense of not wanting to leave any any child who watches that and thinks, "Oh, I relate to that." With the message, well, if things aren't perfect, you've got to leave your family. Mm. And, and maybe they do want to sort of reassure them that actually no, we can all you can all get together and you can all still be a family, maybe they felt that was a necessary message, even though I agree it's a little bit incongruous with what they've written so far. 
yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to draw parallels to other horrible things that could happen in someone's life and, and the person is told, no, no, stick together with that person, you know. <laughs> They're all right. In the long run, it'll work out great. You know, it just strikes me as being so weird. But I think you could be right there. Maybe it is a, a better message for kids that, that running away maybe isn't the answer because it sometimes isn't. But maybe he just shouldn't have been made out to be so awful. <laughs> Because that's the incongruous bit to me. Yeah, I, I think that perhaps they've got to the end of the episode and realised they have to pull back and then didn't reflect that across the episode. So I, I think this is an example of where, although I don't think it's, you know, author's message stamped here in the way it was in St. Anthony's Fire, I think that it is a case of the author's message is seeping through the narrative and twisting that narrative in a way that isn't quite satisfactory, but that seems to have dragged it down more for you than me because I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, oh, that's fine. And like I say, it's one I enjoyed at the time, but it's since it's since then that it's gone down a bit for me. No, yeah. fair enough. Uh, so uh, that's one I've enjoyed a lot and you've mostly enjoyed. Yeah. Shall we move on to Victory of the Daleks? Oh, yes, let's please. All righty. Victory of the Daleks, Dave. Back into the Smith era. Yeah. My God, I thought this was stupid when I first saw it. <laughs> and I see no reason to change my mind now. It's like parts of it came to Gatus in a fever dream. Like, let's have Churchill. Let's have a Dalek that serves him tea. Wouldn't that be funny? Let, let's have the Dalek say, I am your servant. Like in Power of the Daleks. Do you remember that one? Let's have Spitfires in space. Let's have new Daleks. Um, what else? Let, let's have a robot professor. And the whole key to the story is convincing him he's human, so he won't blow up. I mean, come on. All these little bits may be passable in isolation, but you stitch them together and this is just hot garbage, Dave. It's like, have we really fallen so far from the unquiet dead, at least for me? You know, on a graph, these three stories are going downhill. If you graphed it for me, terrible. Absolutely terrible, this one. It's interesting that this is the second time a showrunner has picked Mark Gaddis to write the third episode of their run. Right, yep. So he's obviously seen as being a safe pair of hands, even though he has only written two other episodes at this point of time. But Moffat clearly has a lot of faith in them. And look, we know behind the scenes they're very close friends. And I also had very dim memories of this one. I have seen it a couple of times, but I haven't seen it for quite a while. I agree, it's very clearly written by a fan. Mm-hmm. There are lots of nods, very knowing nods to fans that aren't in his previous episodes. I thought the first third of this was actually pretty good. I kind of liked the whole World War II setting. I liked the panic of the 11th Doctor when he sees the Daleks and he's trying to convince people that these aren't the Metaltrons or whatever they are. The, no, the Ironside, sorry, I'm getting my, my Dalek nicknames mixed up. You know, he, he's convincing them that they aren't the Ironsides. That's that's not too bad. The moment he goes up to the Dalek ship, mm-hmm. it does become a mess. I agree with you. The whole is less than the sum of its parts. I don't know whether there's a certain element of Gaddis was given a list of things he had to incorporate and he struggled to do that, particularly the reintroduction of the new Daleks that we all know went nowhere. You know, because that feels really forced and the whole episode just sort of stops while the Daleks announce that they're going to have a new paint job. <laughs> um, it, it, it really does sort of throw things down. But at the same time, you've got the Doctor sort of doing very doctory stuff by pretending that a biscuit is a self-destruct mechanism. So 
you know, there are nice little Gaddis-ish moments of humour, but the ending is woeful. The, mm. the, the ending is, is, is just terrible. I think that it's clearly designed to be a fun romp, but the tone doesn't quite carry its way through all of that. Mm. Uh, that's my opening bit. Yeah, look, I, I think here's one where we're maybe the closest so far in agreement, perhaps, on what we think of the episode. Would you agree with that based on what we've said? Yeah, look, I, I think so. There's there's nothing you said that I particularly disagree with. Um, I, I, I enjoyed the first third. I thought the rest was a hot mess. I, I do respect the fact that we finally just brought the Daleks back into the universe, and it did end that very long run over the RTD series of... This is the only Dalek left in the universe. No, actually, no, these are the only other Daleks left. In the- oh, and those Daleks are also in the universe. Oh, and they're... Like, we sort of ended that just... That was becoming ridiculous. Yeah. And now they just said, right, the Daleks are now back. Yeah. Uh, so we don't have to explain the Daleks anymore. So look, it's, it's, it's got that positive. I think it's just totally all over the shop. I don't know what Ian McNeese is going for as Churchill. Mm. I, I really don't. I, it's just a bizarre performance. You've got this really just kind of camp fun bizarre wacky whatever word you want to use it concept of the danny boy spitfires intercut with a robot remembering its lost love and that's why it diffuses the bomb Mm -hmm. it's just totally all over the shop and i i wonder if it is a bit of a reflection of Moffat still getting his feet under the desk as a showrunner, maybe. He he clearly proved he could write a script. He wrote some great scripts in the lead-up to being showrunner. Yes. Was he quite practised in turning somebody else's script into a finished draft? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. The the Bracewell thing at the end just... Oh, I think I almost threw something at the TV the first <laughs> time I saw it. No, it's like, this is dumb. Oh, my God. You know, no. Just... Oh, no, I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe if the whole thing had been done with a kind of wacky camp tone and even there was a sort of a knowing look between the Doctor and and the companions afterwards, it's like, well, that was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe if we were sort of all in on the joke, it it could have worked, but but it's done, as I say, it's done really, really seriously and it just doesn't work. Yeah, and have we ever seen anything flop as bad in Doctor Who as those new Daleks, those new paradigm Daleks, as they called them. Like, they made toys of them, and clearly they thought they were onto a winner. You know, Gators was out there at the time, I think, in interviews saying, yeah, we've made them really big, and they're menacing, and, and they're very colourful, like the 60s films, and, oh, it's going to be amazing. And fandom as a whole just rejected them so completely. <laughs> they were just, like, never seen again, maybe in the back shot of a few other episodes, you know, when they brought together a whole bunch of Daleks or a whole bunch of baddies. Other than that, they flopped hard. It's really incredible because many times I can think of fans on social media or forums, whatever the the case may be, all the letters pages of DWB. You know, (laughs) there's always been things that fans have hated and the production team has invariably just sort of gone, okay, that's just a very loud, noisy bunch of online fans or letter writing fans. Who cares? The general public will love it. Yeah. In this case, I don't know whether it's because the general public as well hated it and they had some some feedback on that or whether they just were a very new production team that thought, oh my God, we've upset the fans, stop! <laughs> um, yeah. and, and maybe if they were you know, a year later into their time, they'd be a bit more confident and wouldn't have done that. I, I don't know, but it is it is just extraordinary. But but they are, they are pretty terrible. Yeah. Should we move on to Night Terrors? 
So, I am fairly sure this is the first time I've watched Night Terrors since I watched it on broadcast. Oh, really? I went into this with absolutely no memories whatsoever. Uh, and it's uh, it's terrible. <laughs> yep. um, nothing happens. L- nothing happens. I was utterly bored. There, there was no plot. I-, I think that the imagery is designed to be incredibly creepy and menacing and memorable. Mm-hmm. I, that, that's clearly what they were going for, and I just thought it looked kind of cheap and silly. And, and I... I was 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 bored. Mm-hmm. I I get what Gaddis was trying to do, but this this to me should have been a horror novel, right? I think that as a horror novel, where you can be very slow, very much focused on the tone and people just creeping around and sort of weird menacing things happening that in a book you can spend a lot of time talking about how weird it is and how dark it is outside and how it's making people feel. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't translate to television. Yeah. This is one I'd never been on board with myself. Uh, I think back to the time this rolled around, which was 2011. We'd had six years of Gatiss at this point. And he'd done, as I say, quite well with The Unquiet Dead. Idiot's Lantern had gone down. Victory of the Daleks, you've just heard my thoughts on. So as soon as I saw the trailer for this with the creepy dolls, I was like, oh, God, let's take a trip to Cliche City. I'm going to hate this. And that's a shame in some ways, as the heart of this story is a horror story. So you're quite right to say, you know, maybe this would do well as a horror novel. You know, with a little boy who's scared of the dark and being in a creepy doll's house feels quite right for Smithy's era. People talk about, well, they used to talk about at least, you know, the the fairy tale nature of Smithy's era. So it's on point for what the era feels like. These are all things I should latch on to because I don't mind a bit of horror. I don't mind the fairy tale aspects, you know, but I just don't. I'm not into it. I, I can't get past what feels like horror by numbers. It feels trope heavy. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not on board with this. Maybe not hating it as much as you, but certainly on that side of the ledger. Interesting that you said the heart of this is the horror novel. I actually don't think that's the case. I think the heart of it is meant to be a very heartwarming story about a dad learning to love his adopted son. Oh, so even getting sucked into the rug or the carpet? No, nothing like. Well, well, I mean, I mean, because because it because it ends with that whole lesson about I'll, I I love you and I'll never abandon you, mm. and, and and I don't know whether there was something in Gaddis's life that particularly made him want to write that, or or maybe Moffat wanted him to write that sort of a story, um, and was inspired by something. And and look, I have heard people that have been new fathers saying that when they saw this as a new father, it really tugged at the heartstrings and, and meant something to them. So so maybe there is some heart there that you and I are missing. But it is, <laughs> I think yeah. I think I, I think that, that that heart is the B, if not the C plot. And okay. it is buried behind a lot of very, very boring walking around. And, you know, even stuff like the moment where Amy's turned into a doll, well, dispassionately you can say, well we know that Amy's not being written out, so who cares? Mm. And and frankly, I loathe Amy so much that having her turned into a doll and not able to speak or act is, um, to me, a step up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a bit of a stinker here, I think. 
yeah, we seem to be uh, unanimous on that. I, th- I thought we might disagree on that one, but no, we are. Uh, look, I think it's terrible. Yeah. Oh, look, and, and it's fair for you to say that because, like I just said, there are aspects of this that I should actually like, but I just don't. Yes. Yeah, I thought this would be a lot more um your your, your vibe. Hmm. Yeah. Moving on to Cold War, Dave, I'd like to subtitle this one The Return of Mark Gators. Because for me, aside from one aspect of the story, which I've mentioned several times over the years, I think this is really neat. I think the 80s setting is cool and we have fun with it. We're doing a base under siege, essentially. Well, it's a submarine, but same thing. Clara plays a proper companion, not an I'm as good as the doctor, me, kind of person. And by making it a solo Ice Warrior adventure, we're in similar territory to Dalek back in Series 1. Obviously not by Gatiss, but a very popular story. All of this is great, and I do I do like the episode. The only blot on the paper here, I think, is, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, inventing that the Ice Warriors are really small little guys outside of the armour. That was never a thing in Doctor Who. It didn't sit well with me that he sort of rewrote Ice Warrior history or wrote enough into it, new stuff into it, that it, it really jarred for me. And I didn't like that aspect at all. But overall, I think this is a really cool story. I like the way you call it the return of Gaddis mm-hmm. because I think this is Gaddis returning to his roots a bit. Oh. After after a couple of episodes where he has tried to insert some some message or some heart or some 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 of his sort of approach to to, to writing, he's gone very traditional. Mm-hmm. He has just said, right, let's let's do a base under siege. Yeah, let's let's find an isolated place that we can't escape from. Let's put a classic monster into it and let's just do that. Let's just have fun. And and I think that it really works. This this is for me, one of the stronger episodes of its era. I, I think it's a really good runaround. I enjoyed it watching it this time. Uh, we need to note in passing, it is superbly well cast, in part by accident. Mm-hmm. I don't think they quite knew that a number of people they cast would become significantly bigger names by the time you know a few years had rolled around. So um, they did get it, although it was disappointing Josh O'Connor was killed after about the first five minutes. But <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's Josh O'Connor. Oh, he's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's really good. Um, I, look, I I agree with you. Um, my my exact note my exact note here, Rob. Ice Warrior is good, but the whole getting out of its shell is a wank. Um, <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yep. Look, look. I'm not nearly as angry about that as you are. I kind of get what they were trying to do. They were trying to do for the Ice Warriors what they've done for other returning monsters and put a modern day twist on it. So I I get it. I think it's a bit of a wank, but I get it. I'm not not angry about it. I still think it lacks an ending. Mm-hmm. I can remember thinking at the time when the Ice Warrior flying saucer rocks up going, oh, cool, this is this is what the last 10 or 15 minutes is going to be. We've, we've had all the lead up with one Ice Warrior and setting up that they're really badass and we're going to do all that. Oh, now we're going to have you know, the, the final confrontation with a bunch of Ice Warriors, of course. The, mm-hmm. Oh, oh, no, he's, he's just gone. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Oh, we're done. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I, it really does feel like either he ran out of time or they ran out of budget, mm-hmm. and so we sort of got that. It, it really feels like a real sort of tacked-on joke ending. You know, the oh, can we get a lift? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I reckon that that was paired back for for time or budget reasons, but no. Look, this is this is this is fun. Yeah. This is good. This was better than I remembered, and I remembered it pretty well. Very good. Shall we move on to the next? This is 
one that I know a lot of fans are big fans of. That's the Crimson Horror. Mm-hmm. And when it was first on, I was very excited by it because it had, of course, Diana Rick, who was fantastic in The Great Muppet Caper and probably some other stuff as well. <laughs> so once again, this is the second time I've watched this episode. I haven't seen it since broadcast. And I don't get it. Oh. I I don't get it at all. My my main feeling with this one was 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 boredom. It takes a lot of time to really get the story going. I think Diana Rigg is doing something. Not sure what, but it's something. <laughs> uh, the the sort of revelation that Mister whatever his name was was a slug. Kind of you know like I didn't see that it was coming. That it was going to be a slug. But it was very clearly not going to be a real person. It was very unsubtly set up i think that if cold war was him returning to traditional doctor who this is him returning to his love of horror and there is a lot of horror in this there is a lot of grimace in this there is a lot of the grand ginnel in this uh, with people being changed color and horrible mystery stuff and, and murders but none of it really kind of leapt out at me and once again i think it lacked it lacked plot mm. and it lacked something for me to latch onto. so i I was frankly bored through the Crimson Horror. Rob, where do you sit? Well, I, th- I think you're right about Gaddis going back to, to something he loves. Obviously, it's the Victorian era and probably what you could call Penny Dreadful type stories. Yeah. And he's kind of doing a pastiche of those. Uh, but for me, uh, knock me down with a feather, Dave, because it's the second Gator story in a row that I think worked really well uh, in this list. <laughs> And which I enjoy. I think a big part of that is the light touch and the comedy vibe of the piece. And when you're doing that kind of story that's light and has comedy, you can throw in Strax and Jenny and Vastra, who are characters that I'm not really on board with all the time, but it feels right here. And you said it in Victorian times, and Gatiss does seem to be in his happy place when you're in Victorian times. And you make it Dr. Light. Because it is, it, I, I would call this a Dr. Light. I'm not sure if everyone would, but I'd call it Dr. Light. Yeah, he's not there until halfway through, so yeah. Mm. And it gives it a different vibe. You, you've got Diana Rigg playing the villain, and that's so fun. So I like this a lot on debut, and I still actually like it now. And to do a callback to something I was saying about the Idiot's Lantern, back in Idiot's Lantern where Tommy is told to still stay in touch with his total shit of a dad, here Ada is allowed to be angry and stay angry with her mother, even when the mother's dead, even when Mrs. Gillyflower is dead, the doctor sort of gives her permission to, to be like that, doesn't, doesn't sort of say, oh, you know, you should, you know, think kindly of your old mum. You know, there's none of that. So it's almost the opposite to what happens in The Idiot's Lantern, just to tie those two stories together. But across the board, I like this. I think it's fun. That's really interesting. Look, we've, we've talked about the fact that you like Victoriana more than I do and okay I that, do. That, 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 that's, that's fine that's a reason for you to like this more than I do it's it's interesting when you when you said this has got a lot of comedy in it I was very tempted to sort of do the whole really where um, <laughs> um, but look I'll, I'll, I'll make the more, more sensible point which is you're probably right the problem with comedy is that it's it's a spectrum that different people get in different ways. And it really hadn't occurred to me that this was a comedy until you just said it then. But then as I'm listening to you talk and you say, oh, Mrs. Gillyflower, I'm like, her name's Gillyflower. Mm-hmm. Of course this is a comedy. It's clearly meant to be silly. Yeah. I, I didn't 
noticed that as I was watching it. I didn't find it funny. I didn't laugh at it. I, I was just sort of bored by it. So is this a case of where my failure on the humor spectrum has just been, I've, this has just whew, gone completely over my head? I, you know, as loath as I am to call it a failure, I think the, the different ways we've watched it do probably contribute to how we find it. Yeah, because it is intended to be a comedy for sure. You know, I think it's a send-up of a Penny Dreadful sort of thing. Yeah, and maybe my lack of familiarity with Penny Dreadfuls means that I didn't quite get what he was riffing on, so I didn't see it as a send-up. I just thought it as a really bad plot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, know, bad, you know what I'm saying? Bad Doctor Who episode, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, because you, you saw it for... Uh, you, you saw what it was satire, and you that's a really clever satire. I'm just going, what's it doing? Yeah, I think that could be the difference here. Okay, so that's that's one we have had quite a different view on. Very different. Now, moving on, Robot of Sherwood is Gatiss's next. And this is an interesting one, Dave, insofar as when it aired, I wasn't on board. Because given, funnily enough, given what we've just said, the comedy angle here didn't feel right to me. I felt I was rolling my eyes all the way through the piece and then it has that ridiculous arrow shot at the end. And I was just like, what is this junk? But on rewatch a year or two later, and any other time I've rewatched it, like for this episode, I felt completely differently. I enjoyed the humor. I got into the, the story. And I felt like it was actually even trying to say something. It wasn't just a, oh, it's a pastiche of a penny dreadful like the previous story. I think this was comedy that had a point and I think it's trying to say something in the parallels it makes between the Doctor and Robin and the ways... Well, they're both fictional, aren't they, really? And, <laughs> yes. And, and, they, and they both inspire people. And all of that sort of side street, you know. So I've basically done a 180 on this. I think it's funny and I think there's more to it than I first saw. Before I hand over to you, though, I will comment. I'm still annoyed at the edit to the episode where we don't see the sheriff lose his head and reveal that he's a robot. And for people who don't remember this, the week this episode was going out, Daesh had beheaded someone, or at least put out the video of them beheading someone. And the Doctor Who production office sort of went, ooh, we can't do a show where someone loses their head in a week that someone's lost their head for real in the news. And I argued at the time that that sort of thing would be quickly forgotten and indeed is long forgotten now. It might even be news to people listening to this podcast. Not to mention that the audience would be mature enough to know that a robot losing its head in a show made many months earlier obviously wasn't a comment or a riff on the news of that week. But the edit was made, and so now, forevermore, the episode is lumbered without the big reveal, which was kind of important, and it makes an early line in the piece that the sheriff feels like half a machine that just sounds weird now because that goes nowhere <laughs> with without the big reveal i've probably labored this point a little too much but it is something that annoys me about the story but overall this is one i, I did a complete 180 on i've gone from this is junk to i really quite like this i'm glad you took the time to explain that rob because i must admit i did remember that that was the case but i hadn't realized until you reminded me that it actually was a fairly big edit it was a it was a change of plot rather than just a scene cut my memory was that it was a scene cut 
And I was watching this going, where, where did they cut a scene? It doesn't seem to be a missing scene. But mm. but yeah, it actually wasn't just a cut. It was a, it was a remake, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, that, that's interesting. This is one I've seen several times since broadcast because this has long been part of a little trilogy of episodes that I love that really made me fall in love with Peter Capaldi as the 12th Doctor. Uh, Robert oh. of Sherwood, Listen and Time Heist were three episodes that I just loved so much when they went out, having having really disliked Capaldi's first episode, particularly hated Into the Dark, like I loathe Into the Dark. Mm-hmm. But after after this, like, I'm going, oh, no, please don't tell me I'm not going to like this Doctor. I fell in love with him in Robot of Sherwood, and then, yeah, Listen, Time Heist was just a wonderful trilogy where I really fell in love with Capaldi. So I'm very, very fond of this episode. Always have been. And if if there was humour in The Crimson Horror that missed me, the humour in Robot of Sherwood absolutely landed for me. And yeah. I just get the tone it's going for. And when you when you are resonating with an episode in the way I did with this, everything now works. You love every performance. You love every joke. I, I loved every shot of every leaf that was so lovingly done and just looked luscious and, and, and enjoyable and, and the sun ships driving through and everything in this just works for me. I think Capaldi is great. Um, there are little moments of his, as in Gaddis's fandom, coming through. I, I, I think that him... The, the 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 doctor going around you know stealing people's shoes to analyze his very moon base. I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I I just think this is this is great fun, mm-hmm. and Gaddis is a fun writer, and Gaddis is a fun person. When you see Gaddis interviewed, whether it's on a Doctor Who commentary or interviewed for a, a, a movie he's making or a film he's writing or something like that. When you see him interviewed, he's clearly a very fun guy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's got that that twinkle in the eye where you always know there's something a little bit mischievous around the corner no matter what's happening. And I think he's put himself into this script and it works. He's unencumbered, he's relaxed, and I felt relaxed and I was just, just comfortable watching it. Yeah, and absolutely the comedy is different to the comedy in The Crimson Horror absolutely different but still comedy yeah and and perhaps different because we've got two very different actors and peter capaldi obviously coming off the thick of it we 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 know exactly what sort of a comedic actor he was and and the production team knew exactly what sort of comedic chops he has and they've written it to him and he is he is brilliant in this absolutely brilliant i think he just nails it oh even when he puts on the glove and he's giving the finger to robin you know (laughs) it's very subtle but it's there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. There, there are some great lines. So look, I've always loved this one and I still do. Brilliant. Shall we move on to Sleep No More? Yeah, so I watched Sleep No More a couple of nights ago. Uh, unlike Robert of Sherwood, this is not one I've gone back to. And uh, this is, again, one that I'm watching for only the second time for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And as I put it on, I thought, okay, okay, it's time to do Sleep No More. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows this is the bad one. Everybody knows no one likes this one. Although it's a Gaddis one, so it has got fans because every Gaddis one is somebody's favourite. Yeah. And I'm sort of watching the first two or three minutes and I'm going, wow, this is an amazing, tense, pacey opening. Oh, this is cool. Mm-hmm. And then I'm watching the first 10 minutes and going, oh, this is, this is really good. Like, when does it get terrible? And then I'm watching 15 minutes and gone, this is quite exciting. And the, the found footage motif is not nearly as annoying as I remember it. It's, when does it oh. get terrible? And then I'm sort of watched, watched 20 minutes and thought, this is this is really good. Then it got to 22 minutes and it went terrible. 
<laughs> Halfway um, through. Look, look, I said that partly for comic effect. There, there is a point kind of where we're introduced properly to the plot, where I think this does start to um, come apart at the seams a bit, which is a shame. I, I think that the first 20 minutes, I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed it. It's pacey. It's tense. Um, as I say, I didn't mind the found footage. We'll see from your comment if you felt the same. Once it starts to get into the plot, I just have no idea what the hell was going on. I, mm. I generally don't. I've seen it twice. I was I was looking out for that this time because I remembered last time going, I don't know what's going on. And mm. so I was actively trying to find out what was going on this time. I was, I was alert for plot. And um, it, it's there, but it just makes no sense to me. The ending makes no sense to me. Um, the fact the Doctor just sort of buggers off in the TARDIS and then the invasion of wherever they're invading is successful. I'm not yeah. sure. Like, I'm not sure whether that's meant to be the point. It's a really like, oh my God, the invasion succeeded this week, folks. Or whether I'm missing something as well. It's not nearly as bad as I remembered. I remembered it being abysmal. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the first half and then the plot fell apart, but I didn't hate it. Okay. Uh, how to begin? At Look, the very just, beginning. Yeah, yeah. Just as... Just as I had a run of three Gator stories I really liked, we arrive here at Sleep No More. So that that probably tells you what I think of it. (laughs) I still feel that it's an experiment that doesn't work. Like, oh, found footage movies are interesting. Let's do a found footage episode. And if I'm kind, it does kind of give us this view of the Doctor and Companion from other people's perspectives, which is generally something that, works well in shows. I think of that next-gen episode, Lower Decks, that casts the regulars in a different light because we're sort of seeing it partially mm-hmm. through these younger guys' you know, eyes. Yeah, a favourite of mine, I'll just say. Yeah, oh, favourite of many people for, for next-gen. Um, but I, I digress, um, probably because I don't want to talk about sleep no more. The backstory to the monsters is silly. The monsters look silly. And the story is really just a big runaround. I just don't like it. Again, it's an experiment and experiments can be cool. I get that. You know, sometimes you do something experimental and it's just awesome. But this isn't that for me. It still doesn't work for me. I I get why you might think it's better this time around. I think it's the same effect as when we rewatched Jodie and without the pressure of it being the story of the week we could sort of see better things in Jody episodes. It may be a bit of that. I don't want to speak for you though, but it may be a bit of that. I just think this is dire. And I think its reputation is deserved. I'm glad you mentioned it being an experiment. And I, I was going to make the point, love it or hate it. I, I give it credit for trying to do something a bit different. I think that it's good when Doctor Who tries to mix things up a bit. And and, mm. and in Gaddis's eighth episode, you really feel like he's, He's trying to mix it up, and what what we're five series into Moffat show at a time, so yeah, I, I think they're both reaching for something different, and I, I commend them for it, whether it works for you or not. I, I don't think it is necessarily the Jody thing because if that was the case, I probably would have liked Crimson Horror and um, the other one whose name I can't even remember, Night Terrors. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have not liked them a lot more. I, I didn't. This one, I genuinely really enjoyed the first half. I, I think that part of it is that I went in there into it knowing it was a found footage thing and prepared for that to not work. And then when it kind of did work, I, I thought, yeah, okay, that's that's not a problem. So that maybe did help a bit as opposed to the first time I've watched where I'm going like, what 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 is this? Like when when mm. when do we get to normal cameras? And and you know, it's it's not ju- just a found footage because there is that whole 
twist in the fact that you know you're not wearing a helmet so it's recording units through the sleep and all the rest of it so so there was a plot point to the gimmick which i'll give it credit for I don't have anything much more to add. I, 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 I thought this was much better than I remembered, even though it, it does completely go off a cliff at about mm. the 22-minute mark in the last five minutes. He's, he's just... I, I was still sitting there going, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, so it's it's not a, you know, it's not it's not going to be in my top three. It's a, that's the first spoiler I'll give for the end of this. It's not in my top three. <laughs> Safe to say, okay. Um, but it but it was better than I remembered. Okay, well let's move on to the Empress of Mars, which is Gatus's final slice of Doctor Who to date, at least. You know, he may come back to the show. Who knows? And I find this one curious, in the sense that Gatus has taken a lot of elements that seem really cool and interesting, and again thrown them together much like the idiot's lantern and again they don't rise for me i mean he's got ice warriors i love ice warriors and he's got victorian soldiers on mars when no one listening to this podcast will actually know this because i've never spoken about it but i used to really love a role-playing game called space 1889 which was all about victorians in space so I'm really on board with the idea of having red coats on other planets, right? I, I absolutely get it. I love it. I've played a role-playing game about it. I do wonder where the Gatus might, even though Space 1889 himself, the way he took this story. But when I watch it, I just feel something's missing. It's competent, sure, solid, maybe. I have nothing to really rag on it for. But again, I don't think it's anything special either. So perhaps... At long last in this list, for me at least, it's a non-Marmite Gatus episode. It's just, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit better disposed to it than you. This is one of those episodes where sometimes you have a, an episode that you've got a lot of good points to make, but then there's a big thing that sort of offsets that. Mm. This isn't that. This is one of those things where I think the central concept is really strong, the direction's really strong. The, the the production's really strong. It's a good, fun episode, but it's just got a few little things that chip away at my liking. Um, right. I, I, I think the chatty ice warrior doesn't quite work for me, and maybe that's me bringing my classic fan love of the ice warriors into it. Where I'm like, this guy's very chatty for an ice warrior. Ice warriors <laughs> don't chat. Um, yeah. You know, that, that was just a little sort of niggle for me. I, I, I think that... This is a return of Gaddis trying to make a bit of a social comment. I think he's trying to do a bit of a riff on colonialism thing oh, yeah. here. Um, um, look, I don't think that's a particularly profound statement to make. Some of it works really well. A couple of times he does lean into, hey, everyone, look at my very cool social commentary I make about colonialism. Colonialism is bad, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal. It's not a big problem, but it just sort of chips away at my liking a little bit. But look, otherwise, I think it's a really fun episode it doesn't outstay its welcome Mm -hmm. and and i think at this point he certainly knows how to fill exactly the right runtime very well and and let's face it he's always filled out his runtime neatly whether it worked for you or not he he knows how to write television oh yes and so i think this was just this was just good okay dave before we get to our top and bottom threes i've got three gatus extras to throw at you. You started this by talking about his novels. I've got some extras to throw at you. Oh, excellent. I, I have a minor one myself, but I'll hear your three. Okay. During the pre-production of Series 4, Gatus allegedly, well, actually more than allegedly, we know this because 
it's, it's commented about in the Writer's Tale book, Gatiss pitched a story to RTD involving the Natural History Museum being invaded by Nazis and aliens, and it would apparently be a bit of an Indiana Jones sort of runaround with, you know, lots of corridors and the occult and obviously Nazis and, and such. And uh, RTD wrote in the writer's tale that the Gator story was up against James Moran's uh, The Fires of Pompeii. And we all obviously know The Fires of Pompeii got the chocolate. So we never got to see this Indiana Jones-inspired Gator story. Would you have enjoyed that, possibly? Oh, look, I love the Natural History Museum, so, yeah, I would have been keen to see that for sure. Mm, yeah, and that sounds really interesting. That's one of my episodes that didn't happen. Uh, another episode that did happen is, of course, An Adventure in Space and Time, and I think we should touch on this briefly because I still find it's remarkable that this got made at all. I know the 50th anniversary was a big deal for Doctor Who. I know Doctor Who was and is a big show, but I still find it extraordinary that they made a telly movie about Verity Lambert and William Hartnell and people like this back in 1963 making Doctor Who. And of course, Gatiss is responsible for this and hats off to him for it. Yeah, I remember seeing that when it came out. It was one of my top three highlights of the 50th anniversary at the time. I thought it was an absolutely gorgeous piece of television. I've soured on it a bit as I've really come to appreciate how much of it is just actually historical nonsense. And I think that's a great shame because a lot of fans will see it as being accurate. They'll, they'll sort of go, oh, I saw it in an adventure in space and time. This is what, like, no, no, that's nothing like that actually happened, which is a great shame. Although it, it is interspersed with some factual scenes. The scene where Sidney Newman talks William Hartnell back down off the ledge is apparently a verbatim uh, account of something that did happen, for example. But mm-hmm. m- most of it is historically uh, dubious, if not made up. I think that's a shame because it's a gorgeous piece of television. Oh, but look, a lot of biopics are like that. I've made a YouTube video. I was reading Robbie Krieger's biography, his autobiography, Robbie Krieger from The Doors. And there's a chapter where he lists, listed about seven or ten, I can't remember, things in the Oliver Stone Doors movie that never actually happened. And I, I ran through them in the video and put corresponding footage to them. And I made the comment in that video that, you know, people will watch The Doors movie even now, let alone in 10 or 20 years' time, and think, oh, that, that's what happened. That's, that's what a Doors concert looked like, or that's factual. When, like, one of them was, you know, in the movie, they play a gig in San Francisco in 1968, and Robbie Krieger says, we didn't play a gig in 1968 in that city at all. Um, and we certainly didn't play one at nighttime with a bonfire and naked people running around the bonfire, you know, it's like, but that will become people's view of reality. And it's the same with this adventure in space and time. There will be elements of it that are completely fictional, but people will be like, oh, that's, that's what happened. That's what Hartnell said. So I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, and quickly, finally, instead of the Empress of Mars, Gatiss was actually thinking of making a follow-up to Sleep No More, believe it or not. Yes, I have heard that. Yeah. It never got very far, so I think it was going to be similar sort of effects just playing out, you know, on a on a more of a planet-wide scale, maybe on a bigger scale, but it didn't really get very far in the writing. I think he sort of maybe pitched the idea, possibly half-heartedly, given the response to the original story, and it just went nowhere, and he ended up writing The Empress of Mars. But I just thought I'd mention that too, that that was on the cards at one time. Yeah, and, and look, I could certainly believe that he intended to do that given how open-ended the episode actually is um and look just while we're talking about other things uh we 
made the choice that this was about Mark Gaddis, the writer, so we obviously haven't mentioned his several appearances as an actor in Doctor Who, but he's obviously an actor and writer and a lot of other stuff. And I just want to give a very passing shout-out to his performance as Peter Mandelson in the TV movie Coalition, where he is absolutely brilliant, and I think he was just born to play Peter Mandelson. Oh, very good. He was very good in Game of Thrones as well. Sure. Back when Game of Thrones was good. It was? Cool. (laughs) Originally, yes. Dave, shall we move on to our top and bottom three? Yes, I think we should. And um, why don't you go first? With my top or my bottom? Um, Whichever you feel you want to run with. Well, you always like to end on uh, a high. So why don't I start with the bottom? Okay. And here, Dave, I'm going from my third worst to my all-time worst. Understood. (laughs) So at number three, I'm going with Night Terrors. It's not egregious, but I'm not on board with it either. At number two, Victory of the Daleks. Just a stupid, stupid thing. And at number one, no surprises here from me, Sleep No More. Absolutely woeful. And that was quite an easy bottom three to pick, actually. Interesting. We have two snaps, which is more than I maybe expected going into this. Okay. Uh, But our order is different. I have Victory of the Daleks at number three, Mm -hmm. as in the third worst. I, I think that it's... Got some good moments, but overall it just doesn't stand up as a, as a piece of coherent television. At number two, probably no shock having listened to the episode, I've gone with Crimson Horror. I know a lot of fans love it. It doesn't work for me at all. And look, I think it is one of the most Marmite of the Gaddis episodes. And the worst episode that I think Mark Gaddis wrote is Night Terrors, because I thought it was terrible. Yeah, very good. I, I, we agreed more than I thought too, actually. We did, we did, which is interesting. Dave, let's talk top three. Yes. And in a similar running order, third through to my all-time top story. My top three would be Robot of Sherwood at three, The Unquiet Dead at two, and The Crimson Horror at one. And even from random comments we've had on Twitter this week, I know some listeners will be stamping their phones into the dirt about now and shouting, you finished, Irwin, you bloody bastard, you know. (laughs) And others will be punching the sky and cheering those choices. And I think that's Mark Gator's stories for you. It's quite extraordinary, especially as he's a non-showrunner. Yeah, well, look, as I predicted, we have got one of my bottom three in your top three. (laughs) (laughs) So that that goes to show something's going on there. We only had one snap in our tops. There you go. Uh, My third best Gator story was Cold War. Just Mm -hmm. a good, fun adventure, a great base under siege. Number two, I know it's not one of your favourites, Rob, but I had to have the Idiot's Lantern in there. I just think it's a really enjoyable adventure with some good 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 ideas and some depth but our snap was robot of sherwood you had it third i had it one that's an extraordinarily fun adventure and that's the one i would show someone to show what mark gaddis can do as a writer yeah i i think you're right i think i might do that too if i'm ever in that position because it is it is just fun yeah i my biggest surprise is that sleep no more did not make my bottom three I'm surprised by that as well. <laughs> I think a few people will be. Uh, so, look, listeners, we would love to hear your top and bottom lists because we really do want to test this theory that people have very different views on the Gaddis episode. So tweet us, message us, email us, and we'll uh, we'll have a look and test that. But that's what we thought. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to go through. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I'm glad I rewatched all of those. Even the ones I didn't enjoy, I'm glad I've seen them again. Shall we wrap the show up, Dave? Uh, yes, so let's start by talking about what we've been watching. And I think we need to say at this point, Rob, 
We have both been watching The Ashes. Yeah, we certainly have. <laughs> and uh, I believe, uh, who won the first test, Rob? I, I, I know Australia was down for most of it. Um, but um, was, the, was that team with three number 11s in the <laughs> tail end of their batting order? Uh, that would be that would be it. That would be it. Yeah, it was the yeah. team that, that didn't declare at the end of their first innings for no apparent reason. <laughs> Yes, the team that doesn't play basball. Yeah. Hello to our English listeners. We do love you, I promise. Yes, we do very much. Uh, Dave, what have we been watching in the past month? Uh, look, I haven't had a lot of time to watch things because I've been watching a lot of Mark Gaddis. I've been reading a lot of Mark Gaddis and Fair. I've just done a fortnight in Canberra. It was For those of you who are in Australia, you'll probably appreciate it, it was a very... Very hectic and full-on time in the Senate. For the Not to mention cold. And, and cold, yes. Yeah. So um, I have been very busy, but I have been re-watching the sitcom Goodnight Sweetheart as mm-hmm. my sort of easy watching, what you know, eating dinner kind of thing. This is a sitcom that went out in the mid to late 1990s, and it is about Nicholas Lindhurst, who plays a TV repairman who discovers when he walks past a certain pub, he travels back to World War II. Mm. And famously, it was from a time when um, a friend of mine commented, they're making a TV show where a guy walks into a pub and goes back in time. They're making a TV show where a woman rides a motorcycle and goes back in time, but they won't make Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> it was definitely from that point. I was an avid watcher of this when it came on. And for, for listeners in, in overseas, just I think it's interesting to note how the ABC used to do these sitcoms. They would usually pull sort of two or three seasons together and then just broadcast them Monday to Thursday or Monday to Friday until they were done. And then when they bought the fourth season, they would show the first three all again and then show the fourth. And when they bought the fifth season, they would show the first four all again Monday to Friday and then show the fifth. So like uh, Keeping Up Appearances was another example of this, although I'm fairly sure there is only one plot for Keeping Up Appearances episodes, but we'll go there. (laughs) So I'm very, very familiar with the early episodes of this because I saw them multiple times going out. But I realised I really haven't seen a lot of those later episodes much. In fact, the last series I only seen the ones when it went out. And I've been really quite enjoying it. It's it's a sitcom, so it's a bit hit and miss sometimes. It's very good at that sci-fi concept of what would a guy do if he could go back in time? And mm. how, how would he fit in? And then it sort of starts to work through his actual life and he sort of realises, for example, if I bring stuff back from 1942... I can sell it for huge amounts of money. Right. But also, if I want to start spending more time in 1941, how do I explain that to my wife? Mm. Um, and it, look, look, it's it's not a spoiler at all to say that by the end of season one, he has fallen in love with someone in 1940s London. And a large part of the comedy, therefore, comes from how does he balance having a wife and a girlfriend in two different timelines? and. His best mate keeps calling out Alan and he says, well, it's not technically bigotry if they're not alive at the same time. <laughs> Great. But it was interesting watching it back. Look, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Some of the concepts work really, really well. It It is a little bit dated in that sense because there are moments when you do sort of realise that the, the hero is a bit of a bastard and mm. he is very selfish at times about trying to make sure that it's his life that is perfect and he is managing his two lives in these two different eras um you know where he and, and you know back in 1940 he can use his knowledge of future events to to make money and to be successful you know he he knows what's going to be bombed every night so he can oh don't don't be here tonight mm-hmm. so that works really well um the two-timing thing in his selfish nature is 
a little bit dated. I'm not going to you know say it needs to be cancelled or not works. It's not that, and they just about get away with it because Nicholas Lindhurst is such a lovely actor and such a great guy yeah. that like you know you you never want to hate him. But it, I, I think particularly when you binge it, as I've been doing, you just sort of see again and again how often he's a bit of a bastard to two people around him, particularly his 1990s wife. But uh, look, that was really enjoyable. I've been watching it on um, on a, uh, a, a non-official website, mm-hmm. um, but I'm told that British viewers, it is on BritBox. Oh, okay, very good. What have you been watching, Rob? You've always got something very unusual for me. <laughs> i got two things this uh, month. One I'll touch on briefly and one I'll have a lot more to say about. I've started re-watching the anime films of Hayao Miyazaki in reverse order this time around to celebrate that his final film how do you live is coming out in july these are such lovely things uh, for listeners think of things like ponyo howl's moving castle kiki's delivery service um, things like that uh, if people know what i'm talking about need i say more just fabulous anime movies you know and all quite different to each other too okay and i've also started a mega run through farscape from start to finish and for people who don't know this was made by the nine network down here in australia and i never watched it at the time around the year 2000 but it's such an extraordinary thing now that i'm actually dipping into it because you've got the blake seven vibe very strongly of prisoners on the run in an extraordinary and very rare spaceship there's an authority who's chasing after them there are quirky adventures of the week. Uh, you start getting some arcs in season two, but the first season particularly, just quirky adventure of the week stuff. I mean, the lead actor was talking about Buffy in an episode I just watched. Like, right. he, was talk- he was talking about, I think it was like, oh, all the people who are, who are no longer alive on Earth, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because the lead is a guy from Earth who has fallen through a wormhole into this universe. So he has all these pop culture references that he can throw in about things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and it can be completely in keeping with the story. It's, it's quite great. And look, Dave, I'll, I'll be brief now. It just blows my mind that Australian TV was making 22 episodes a year of this and did for four years. So there's like 88 episodes and then there's a mini series to finish the thing off. I mean, I I feel like I could do a whole podcast on this. Um, Don't tempt me. But probably the most useful thing I could say here is that if anyone's going to start it, I did find the first half of season one serviceable, but not quite there. But halfway through that season, everything goes up a gear. The stories look better. The effects look better. The the puppetry, because there's a lot of Jim Henson puppets in it, look better. They're still the same puppets. I think they're just lit better. You know, it's like it comes from a different era. So from halfway through season one, Farscape is a firm recommendation from me to sci-fi fans. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I, I can remember it coming out. And look, in, in the lead up to the year 2000, there were a number of sci-fi type shows that Australian television was doing, but much more aimed at the young adults. I'm thinking stuff like Spellbinder, Ocean Girl, Thunderstone, which I've gone back and watched. And look, they are very clearly aimed for young adults, but I think they hold up quite well. I do remember Farscape being on and a few friends watching it. I was about 20 at the time and I just didn't need another sci-fi program in my life. I had other things to do. I think um, that's where I was at the time too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
I'll be interested to see what you think, because my memory of looking at the ads was that it looked terrible. It just looked cheap. I can see why you would think that. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll be interested to hear more about it when you finish your run. Yeah, it's particularly good to, for us who would know all the Australian actors of the 90s and early noughties, every episode is chock full of all the Australian actors of that era. Right, okay. So it's like, oh, it's him off a of country practice. Oh, it's her off East Street, you know, that sort of thing. Very, very much so. Uh, look, I'll also just note that my favourite of the new era of Trek shows, Strange New Worlds, has started again. Uh, mm-hmm. Once we finish that, I'm going to go watch episode two and so a shout out for our friends over at trek this out who are doing a contemporary set of hot takes with it awesome well dave this episode has gone on probably quite long enough should we talk about what's coming up next month and get out of people's ears look we should thank you for sticking with us uh there are nine episodes with a lot we had to talk about so uh hopefully you found that entertaining Hmm. next month well look rob we've done a number of episodes over the last few years that I call mix and matches where we've said let's mix up this story and this TARDIS crew or let's drop the TARDIS crew in a different TV series or different movies or whatever Mm. and next month we're going to do the inverse of that next month we're going to pick from each year of Doctor Who a story that is so of its era and works so particularly with that particular TARDIS crew that you could not imagine it being with any other TARDIS crew Maybe because it's a definitive story of its era. Maybe because it's just something in the plot that means you have to have that character. Or maybe it's just, it all works so well, you would never change it up. Approach it any way you like, mix and match your takes, but but stories that have to have that TARDIS crew. As always, let us know your thoughts, listeners. That'd be great. But until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. And we'll see you next time on the Doctor Who show. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>